Straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. In today's episode, I sit down with Chris Wozniki. Chris is a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary. He recently won the IVP Early Career Philosopher of Religion Prize for an essay that he wrote on human free will, determinism, and prayer. In today's episode, Chris and I chat about theological anthropology before turning to discuss the nature of prayer and the relationship between free will and theological determinism. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Chris and I talking about prayer and free will. Enjoy. So Chris, you're currently writing a a PhD dissertation on theological anthropology. So why don't you start by explaining what theological anthropology is? Yeah, so um, that's actually, it's a funny thing you asked that. I have a friend who's a cultural anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Um, She's studying at Cornell. And I posted something about theological anthropology on Facebook. And she made the comment, um, or she asked the question, what is theological anthropology? Like she knows what cultural anthropology is. She knows that field. And at the risk of sounding redundant or being kind of too smart, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I wanted to say that it is just like anthropology, but it's theological. Um, and I, I didn't actually say that. I explained to her that it's the study of humanity from a theological perspective. And I think for her, that answer was probably sufficient. But if I were to answer that in a sort of college setting, teaching mm-hmm. class or something, I would want to say that theological anthropology is theological reflection on the human person. And by that, I think there are two parts of that definition that I just gave. Uh, The first part is that it's theological reflection. The second part is that it has to do with the human person. So the theological aspect, I think, expresses the idea that human persons can't be understood completely without any reference to theological claims. So the specific theological claim that I have in mind is that humans were created to exist in a human divine relationship. And this this conviction plays out in different ways and sort of the, the subfields or sub, subtopics of theological anthropology. So for example, when we consider the image of God, doctrine of sin, uh, redemption, human destiny, human vocation, all those things will have to be cashed out in this divine human relationship. Personally, I want to emphasize that reflection upon the divine human relationship begins with Christ. Not just that Christ is important or significant, but that Christ's humanity is in some way normative for understanding our humanity. So Christ is fully divine, fully human, and actually believe that he's a teleological focus of creation. So so teleology meaning some sort of like design or aim or goal. Right. So, um, yeah. So in, in that sense, I think that Christ is the key to theological anthropology. Okay. All right, so that's the theological part. So now tell me about like the human part, the human person part. Yeah, so the human part, that's the anthropological side of mm-hmm. things. The task of theological anthropology is to understand the human person. And in my opinion, this means that we seek to understand human beings as they actually exist in this world. So we're not just I thinking about some ideal human being, like we want to actually study humans as they are in the world. And that means that theological anthropology will necessarily be interdisciplinary. Mm. We will have to 
think theologically about issues uh, related to cultural anthropology, philosophy of mind, psychology, cognitive science, sociology, evolutionary biology, whatever. Any, any field of anthropology will be thought about in a theological manner. So theologians who work in theological anthropology need to, at the very least, uh, be conversant with the findings and data produced by these other disciplines. Okay, so the way you describe it, I mean, it makes it sound like theological anthropology. It's a really wide-ranging subject, and you have to do a lot of interdisciplinary work. So why don't we get a bit more specific? Why don't you start by telling me what a human person is? <laughs> that's, uh, that's not the easiest kind of question. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure I can give sort of the, the exact answer, but I have a few working definitions that, okay. um, that I think are helpful, that I really like. So let me give you two of those. Uh, the first one is that human persons uh, are the kinds of beings that were created by the Father, uh, God the Father, according to the Son, who's the express image of God for the purpose of participating in the life of the triune God via the binding of the Holy Spirit. So that's a very sort of Trinitarian mm-hmm. account. Um, right, yeah. It has a lot to do with participation in the triune life. So some days that's the kind of definition that I'm really into. Uh, on other days... I'm inclined to say that a human person is the kind of creature that has been given the task X. And then you have to do sort of the biblical theological work of filling out what that task is. And I tend to think, sort of given my understanding of ancient Near Eastern backgrounds and Mm -hmm. biblical studies, that that task has something to do with the biblical terms, ruling, having authority, being a vice regent, that sort of stuff over creation and manifesting God's presence in creation in an embodied and visible manner. So part of it has to do with uh, embodying presence, and part of it has to do with wielding a certain sort of authority. Okay, so... And so responsibility. On, right, so okay, so on this account, to be human person is to have some particular task. And along the Genesis story, it's like, oh, well, something like rule over creation, make sure you like represent the presence of God, and these sorts of things. So that could be one way of filling out whatever that task is. Right. That's the idea. Yeah. Okay. So, so with that, with that being the case, then uh, there's an- another question I want to get into. It seems like this sort of account of like having a particular task, like that entails that humans have free will, because otherwise, you know, what is God asking them to do? One of the features you've also talked about as well is that part of what it means to be human is to share the presence of God, demonstrate the presence of God. And that seems like that could be wrapped up with uh, like praying to God. Uh, so within Christian scriptures, though, like believers are like strongly encouraged to pray. It's part of what, you know, means to be human. You should pray, pray like this, do this. And it sounds like a person is free to pray or is free not to pray. But Christians disagree over what free will looks like. So I'm curious about different understandings of free will and how they impact a Christian understanding of prayer. So why don't we start with what free will is? Yeah, so let me give you just a super broad kind of answer. It might actually be too broad okay. uh, for your audience, but I don't know. So uh, there are several options that I think sort of cover what it might mean for an action to qualify as being a freely willed action. So one of those options is that an action is free when it results from rational deliberation. That is, when a person chooses on the basis of her desires, beliefs, values, or rightly ordered appetites or desires. So that's one option uh, for calling an action free. Another option uh, is that an action is free when there's some ownership over that action, uh, and you'd have to spell out what ownership means, what it actually means to be properly related to the agent who's committing that action. So that's another option. The third option is that an action is free when it's under the control of the human agent in some meaningful 
sense. So mm. the three sort of options are it's rational, there's some sort of ownership, or there's some sort of control. Okay, so I could be free in the sense of, well, I'm acting for reasons. I could be free in the sense of, well, I, it's my action, I own it. Mm-hmm. And then I could also be free in the sense of, well, I'm, I'm under control here. This is my control, uh, that I'm under control of these actions. So, so those are three ways that you could possibly be free. So that's what free will is. And so like I said, I wanted to get on the topic of the relationship between free will and prayer. So, so now that you've given me a count of free will, help me understand what is prayer. So I would want to start by defining prayer as minimally as possible. Uh, So here's one definition that I've used in the past. Petitioning prayer is an act of communication directed at God, which takes the form of presenting a request to God for some state of affairs to come about. So that's a very sort of minimal definition. Now, the more difficult question, one that forces somebody to sharpen that minimal definition and add to it, is a question, what are we doing when we offer those petitions? Now, the most common answer that I've come about, living my life as a Christian, going to church, all that kind of stuff, it might just be my particular theological circles, is what I've called the ordinary account of prayer. Now, ordinary doesn't mean boring, not well thought out, dumb, whatever. It mm-hmm, just means sure. that like, it's, it's the common view that a lot of people yeah. tend to hold. Not just the people that I grew up in church with, but theologians as well. So Donald Blosh, for example, says that petitioning prayer involves not only submission to the will of God, but actually seeks to change his will. Karl Barth actually says something interesting. He says that God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence on God's actions, even upon his existence. So, so that's, that's what he says. Stanley Grenz, he's another um, American theologian, and he says that prayer does four things. It affects the people who make the petition. Uh, it also affects those whom the prayer is offered for. It affects a host of spiritual forces in the cosmos, and that's his specific language that he uses, and it also affects God. And then he makes a conclusion that it's actually really difficult to affirm an understanding of prayer that presupposes an immutable God whose fixed plan is completely unaffected and undeterred by human petition. Uh, and that comes from his book, Prayer, the Cry for the Kingdom. Now, I wouldn't necessarily want to word it as strongly as Grenz did. I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to necessarily word the ordinary account as strongly as he did. And I'm not sure, but I think it might be possible to affirm a mutable God uh, who has a fixed plan that's undeterred by human petitions. But I'm not exactly so sure. I, I think it's definitely that. the case. So like uh, Samuel Clark affirms that God is temporal and mutable in certain respects. But he says, well, look, his will is completely, you know, once God declares, I'm going to do this, he's going to do it. That's immutable in, in that sense. So, yeah, you could easily have some sort of mutable account yeah. of God and, and get the sort of... Uh, really strong account of like uh, of, of god's will that you would yeah. want mm-hmm. um so yeah so those are some theologians uh, yeah. a lot of new testament scholars make the same point david crump uh, I, I believe that he's at calvin college uh, he says that the new testament is just filled with evidence which points to god's uh, personal availability to hear and to respond that's a key word to respond to each individual's request in a two-way relationship of personal give and take. And he says that if you deny this, that you actually leave significant textual wreckage Ooh. behind. Okay, so like so if you deny this, then you're just you're just like giving up on scripture. You're like, just giving up, you're imposing so what he says is that you're imposing an alien sort of metaphysics or an alien sort of philosophy. Oh, onto the text. Onto the text that's Ah, not there. I see. Okay, so I'm destroying scripture in the sense of um, I'm just enforcing my own views on it and making it say whatever I want. Yeah, if you deny the ordinary account. Okay, so this is something like the ordinary account. So these are strong claims. So you've got, so you've told me like 
you know, the ordinary account, it's it's people in the church uh, that have some sort of intuitions this is right. And now you've got a whole bunch of theologian, New Testament scholars that are saying, yeah, that's that's the right account of yeah. prayer. So yeah, okay, okay, this is okay. I can see why this is a common understanding of prayer. Why you want to call it the ordinary account? Yeah. So and there, are, yeah, it's so not just going. biblical scholars, it's not just theologians. A bunch mm-hmm. of philosophers say the same thing. And the way I would define this, so I haven't really defined it yet. Yeah. I've just said that it involves some sort of give and take, response, some sort of change in God's plans. The way that I would define it is that the ordinary account says that petitioning prayers attempt to persuade God to act by giving God reasons to do that which God would otherwise not have done had the prayer not been offered. So I think that's how I would want to define the ordinary account. Okay, so I want to make sure I'm following this definition. So it seems very important. So this ordinary account of prayer is saying petitionary prayers, there's other kind of prayers you might have, but petitionary prayers in particular, like they're an attempt to persuade God to act in some sort of way. It might, in my prayer, it gives God a reason to act in that particular way that I want. And God wouldn't have acted otherwise if I had not given this prayer. Right. That's the big idea. That's the big idea. Okay. Yeah. And that view is, I think it's, yeah, it's super widely held by a lot of lay persons. Um, And I would say that that view might even be the most sort of intuitive view, even among lay persons who would come from a tradition that denies, uh, explicitly denies the OP. So like they might Mm -hmm. say that they don't believe uh, the oh, ordinary sure. account, um, yeah. but in fact, they sort of operate mm-hmm. upon that sort of manner of thinking. Um, so for those people, I think it's worthwhile sort of exploring what other accounts of prayers might be available, because I think it's a virtue to be consistent. What matters to me is that one is consistent uh, with our views about prayer, freedom, and how God's attributes hold together. Okay, so now I've got this account of ordinary prayer, and like you pointed out, we want to be consistent, but there are different people who come from church backgrounds or theological systems where even if they say, I don't believe in ordinary prayer, they still actually pray that way. So what would be an example of a theological system or a church background where this would seem like it's inconsistent with ordinary prayer? Yeah, so I think uh, if one holds to a reformed understanding of providence, that that would be inconsistent with the ordinary account. So a number of reformed theologians have held to the view that God's providence is so complete and detailed that everything that happens in the world is unconditionally decreed by God. So this account, which sort of most Reformed theologians will hold to, often goes by the term uh, theological determinism. Mm. So if theological determinism is true, then it seems as though petitionary prayer can't persuade God to bring about one state of affairs over another. Otherwise, the sort of unconditional aspect of that uh, understanding of providence goes away. So there seems to be a straightforward incompatibility between the ordinary account and theological determinism. So then the issue is, what is a theological determinist going to do? They need to give some account of of petitioning prayer. Right. So I want to make sure I'm following before we move forward here. So if I'm a theological determinist, I'm saying that God has decreed the entire way the world's going to go, and his reasons aren't really based on anything about you or I. That's because it's unconditioned decree. Uh, okay, well now, hang on, I thought my prayer was supposed to have some influence on God here. So, ooh, what do I do here? So that's that's the problem you try to lay right. out. Okay, so what are some options to try to get out of this problem? Yeah, so I think the theological determinist has several options. First, she could affirm theological determinism, affirm that something like the ordinary account of prayer is true, and just deny that petitioning prayers are ever effective. Oh, okay, so I, so I could say, like, yeah, ordinary prayer, obviously I'm doing it. I'm not yeah. going to stop doing it. Theological determinism, obviously it's true. I just know that when I pray, 
you know, it's not really affecting God at all. Right. But I, but I can't help it. I can't help it. Yeah. Pray. So I could do that. Yeah. And, and there are some people who want to, or sort of go towards that kind of view. And they hold that petitioning prayer is more about sort of changing ourselves, conforming ourselves to God's will. Sure. So it's yeah. not genuinely a request. Okay. Because that's, that's what yeah. feels weird, right? Because I definitely want to say some of my prayers are not requests. Yeah. Uh, so when I start out saying like, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, there's no request there. I'm just like pointing out, God, you're pretty amazing. Yeah. I just want to focus on how amazing you are for a moment. Yeah. Uh, not my will, but your will be done. Right. Cool. Uh, but I'm not really making a petition in that case. Right. But other times, though, I'm praying for something specific. So it would feel really odd to say, well, those really I'm not actually asking. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that captures what I'm really up to. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think that's a legitimate option. Okay. So tell um, me another option. Then. Uh, another option is to deny theological determinism and affirm the ordinary account. Which, yeah, I don't know that somebody in Reformed tradition would... Right, because it seems like you've left the Reformed yeah, tradition at that yeah. point. And then the other option is sort of, the in, not the inverse, but closely related, is to deny theological determinism and deny the ordinary account, which if you do that, I no longer have any idea what you're doing. Right, so I'm getting rid of theological <clears throat> determinism and I'm just saying like, that's ordinary kind of prayer. Blech, you know? yeah. Maybe there's some other kind of prayer, I don't know. Or maybe I'm just not interested in prayer, maybe I'm a deist or something. Sure. These would be ways I guess I could do that. So, but what's what's another option? Um, <clears throat> the, the other option is to affirm theological de- determinism and deny the ordinary account. So if you do that, uh, that would mean that you would have to give some account of what is actually going on in prayer mm-hmm. that's different from the ordinary account. In a way that still tries to capture some of the intuitions of the ordinary account? Is that yeah, the idea? yeah. So so that's, that's the idea. Uh, I think that there are several intuitions that most, that, not most, but a lot of Christians have mm-hmm. uh, about what prayer does. Um, and I think it's really important for us to capture those intuitions in whatever account of petitioning prayer we give. Okay, so if I want to go with this option, I'm saying theological determinism, it's true. Ordinary prayer, that's that's not really what's going on. But some of the intuitions there, I think I can capture it in a different account of prayer. Yeah. Okay, so give me a little snapshot of what that would look like. There's a view that I've called secondary causal account of prayer. Okay. I've written a little bit about it. The view is basically this. Petitioning prayers that are offered to God spontaneously... By agents who are secondary causes do not attempt to persuade God to change his course of action by giving God reasons to act. Rather, petitioning prayers create a change in the praying agent and are the predestined means by which God enacts his decreed state of affairs. So in this kind of account, my, my goal or my intention uh, is to show that there's a robust alternative to the ordinary account of prayer. And I think that the secondary causal account has features that can capture some of those intuitions, which I think are important to any account of prayer. So, okay, so I want to make sure I'm following. So we talked a bit about free will earlier. So some people, though, call it like libertarians. And so libertarians will say, my freedom, whichever way you want to cut it, it's not compatible with being determined by something else outside of me. Uh, whereas others, they're going to say, actually, well, there's this thing called compatibilism because your freedom is compatible with being determined by something outside of you. And so the theological determinism that you're looking at here, it's a, com- it's a form of compatibilism, right? Because it's saying, well, my free actions, they are compatible with being determined by God right. in some sense. But you're trying to flesh out why that's compatible by saying, oh, well, there's this distinction between primary and secondary causation. God's got some power. I've got some power. They're working together in some compatible way. Right. That's kind of the idea here. That, that is exactly the idea. Okay. So now I've got this secondary causal count of prayer, and it's a form of theology. It's supposed to be compatible with uh, theological determinism. 
Well, we said that what we're going to do here is we're going to get rid of the ordinary account of prayer and try to come up with a view of prayer that's consistent with this theological determinism. And we said, well, there's some intuitions, though, that we still want to capture within the ordinary account of prayer. So what are some of those intuitions that you're going to try to capture in order to develop this secondary causal account of prayer? Yeah, so I think there are several really important ones. I'll just list four. So I think the first intuition that any account of petitioning prayer wants to capture is that prayer has certain effects on the person praying. So for example, you might think that when somebody offers petitioning prayers, maybe their desires come more in line with God's desires, maybe they grow in thankfulness, maybe uh, it brings peace in some sort of, um, whenever they're in emotional distress or whatever it might be the case. So I think petitionary prayer, any account, should give some explanation of, uh, of the fact that prayer has certain effects on the person praying. And I think the secondary causal account can do that pretty well. Another intuition that I think a lot of people have is that God does some things precisely because we pray for them. What I mean by this is that there seems to be a causal relationship between prayers, or our prayers and God's actions in the world. So we're going to have to kind of figure out what that means. And it, I think what that means depends on how we understand the word because. Okay. So if we mean that God did something which he would not have done otherwise because we gave God reasons to act, then the secondary causal account doesn't work. That's basically just the ordinary account. Because then I would be getting rid of the unconditional part of theological determinism. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, if because means that our prayers are a part of the sequence necessary for the event prayed for to obtain, for example, certain events like rain or the Dodgers winning the World Series, whatever, mm-hmm. certain events obtain because I prayed, then the S, the secondary causal account seems to make sense of this relationship between our prayers and God's actions. Okay, so it's a different way of cashing out the because. So the ordinary account says, well, I pray, that influences God in some sort of way. Yeah. And well, we can't have that on theological determinism. So instead it's saying like, well, these events do come about because I prayed for them because right. God's ordained that this is how they come about. Right. Okay. All right. So what's another intuition that um, we need to capture? A third intuition is that we freely desire the things prayed for. And I admit that this one gives the secondary account some trouble. So Peter Martyr Vermigli, a 16th century reformer, he says that before God gives a person the thing that she prays for, God exceedingly kindles their mind with a desire to obtain those things. Mm. At first glance, it seems like this doesn't make a ton of sense. So you might think of, of an example where a mom has a daughter. Let's, let's call the mom Amelia, the daughter Shiloh. Mm-hmm. And Amelia knows that chocolate chip ice cream is really good and that it's best for Shiloh to have chocolate chip ice cream. But Shiloh is just very boring and she just likes plain vanilla. Sure. Um, Nothing wrong with plain vanilla. Yeah. <laughs> And so the mom wants Shiloh to experience sort of maximal pleasure. Mm. Uh, So she wants what's best for Shiloh. She knows that she won't experience maximal pleasure by eating vanilla ice cream. But Shiloh wants vanilla ice cream. So the mom, wanting to look and seem like a good mother and wanting what's best for her daughter, tells Shiloh, I want you to order chocolate chip ice ice cream cream." instead of vanilla. Instead of vanilla. And Shiloh just concedes. She says, okay, whatever, like I'm going to order it. It doesn't seem to me in that case that Shiloh's desire for chocolate chip ice cream or the request from the person who's serving it Mm -hmm. uh, is actually a desire that is her own. Right, because she's just going along with whatever other people are telling her. She's like, I don't, whatever, I don't care anymore. Right, so it looks like maybe that's kind of the thing that's going on in this account. However, I 
don't actually think that that's the case. And the reason has to do with the fact that in that particular account, the request for chocolate chip ice cream isn't spontaneous. Mm, okay. Right. So uh, what I mean by that is that uh, it's not coming out of sort of her own desires. It's not birthed out of some internal principle to want a particular kind of ice cream. So it, it doesn't actually, she doesn't have ownership over that desire. So spontaneity here is, it's a technical theological term because it doesn't just mean spontaneous the way that I normally would in, yeah, in like English. Spontaneous combustion, like combustion or something, or right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this means it's spontaneous in the sense that it, it well, it's coming from me. Yeah. And that's, so it's this technical way of, of saying that. Yeah. So, okay. so for Peter Martyr Vermigli, freedom is a matter of voluntariness and voluntariness is a matter of spontaneity. Meaning so it's coming from it's coming from me. Yes. Okay. Uh, so an action is spontaneous if it if the principle or desire comes is birthed out of a person. So in the ice cream scenario, Shiloh's petition was not spontaneous because it was sort of coerced upon ah, right. Shiloh. But in the case of prayer, Vermigli would want to say that our prayers, even though God implants a desire for that particular thing in us, that that desire is still spontaneous. Because it's coming from within me. Right. So, okay, so this Italian theologian saying, like, look, if, if the prayer comes from, like, from outside of you, that's bad because then you're not really desiring it. But the desire is coming from within you. And so God's somehow able to put that desire within you in a way that doesn't override your free yeah. will. So that way, when you do pray this way, the desire is actually coming from within you. It's internal. Yeah. That's the idea. That's the idea. And okay. because it's internal, he can say, or he does say that it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't internal, uh, it wouldn't be voluntary. Okay, because if it was coerced from the outside, not voluntary. Right. Okay, so what's what's another intuition then that, that we're trying to capture with this uh, account? Yeah, so uh, the fourth intuition is that we're the cause of our own prayers. Mm-hmm. So Peter Martyr Vermigli, he says... And I quote him here. He says, God has together with the end predestined also the means. So this view of petitioning prayer can easily lend itself to a view according to which God determines everything to happen and acts as a sole cause of all actions. And that would be bad because then we wouldn't be the cause of our prayers if God is the only cause. And I think this is where Peter Martyr's uh, understanding of secondary causes actually helps. Uh, So he actually develops his account of secondary causation not in conversation with the topic of prayer, but in light of the doctrine of sin. So in uh, one of his texts, Whether God is the Author of Sin, Vermigli tries to answer the question, and I'll quote the question, If God decrees all things which come to pass, is it not the case that God is the cause of sin? Right. So um, God unconditionally decrees all things. There's sin in the world. Mm-hmm. That would mean that God is the cause of sin. Right. That's right. that's sort of the issue. That's pretty bad because then like it makes it look like God's solely responsible for all the right. evil in the world. Right. And that's an evil God. We don't want an evil God. Right. Um, yeah. Evil gods are not not good. Yeah. They're not, <laughs> yeah, they're not desirable. Yeah. So he answers um, that question by saying that even though nothing happens in the world, not even sin themselves outside of God's will and choice or providence. God, quote, is not by himself properly the cause of sin. God is not per se the cause of sin. So Vermigli uh, reasons that God shouldn't be held responsible. Can I quote him? Yeah, okay, yeah. So help me out here, yeah. Give a quote from this Italian guy. Yes. So he says this. He says, when we say the act itself, which later through our own fault is evil, is produced by the supreme cause, that is God, and by us, our will, how should we understand it? Is it completely through God or through ourselves? Is it partly from him and partly from us? For unless God gives assent, it cannot produce action. 
So although by God's absolute power he could perform the work itself, yet, as the course of things stands, he will not act alone, but he will have creatures work with him. By this means, neither the will nor even God is said to be the whole cause. If it is referred to the effect, God and the will are the full cause. For God and the will constitute the entire effect, although joined together in action. Okay, so I want to see if I'm following this quote right. Cause, uh, so, it's, so it's saying something like this. God could, you know, do everything himself if he wanted to. But he wants you to do things too. So he's working with you together. So both both of our, both God's cause and your cause are working together to bring about certain effects. Right. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, that's exactly the idea. So he summarizes this secondary causal kind of view by saying that concerning the will and God, our will does all, but he also says God does all. Mm. Uh, he says one is the first cause and the other is the secondary. So the first cause is God, the secondary is our will. And then after he sort of gives that view, he then wonders why the primary cause isn't responsible for sin, because God is still a cause, right? So God right. is still playing some causal role uh, in sin. Uh, and he reasons that as secondary causes, our sinful actions are willfully performed. Going back to the spontaneity thing, they're willfully performed because they're coming out of our fallen nature, or whatever, however you want to explain that. And then he says this, and I think this is the important part. He says, actions are to be evaluated by their proximate causes. So that's kind of how he gets out of the objection that God might be the cause of sin. So the proximate cause is me, and then the ultimate cause is God. Right. Uh, and so since I'm the proximate cause, I'm the one who's like, you know, right next to bringing about the effect. That's why I'm responsible for it. Right. Because uh, I'm the one who's like closest to the effect. Yeah. Okay. So that's the idea. So then, so then that's why God's not responsible because he's not right. closest to the effect. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Vermigli actually says this, and again, I'll quote him. He says, you will object, already anticipating the objections, mm -hmm. <laughs> of which there are many. He says, you will object that if as the highest cause, God concurs with these actions in this way, and that as proximate causes, evil men do so, it would all be one work of God, the devil, and the wicked. Certainly, this should not be denied. Yet, this work comes quite differently from the superior good cause and from the proximate cause, which is corrupt. Yet, what they... And here he's speaking about um, the people who crucified Christ. Mm. Uh, he says, what they did against Christ must be called evil as such because they both take the name and nature from the proximate cause, even though God used them with his justice according to his own providence. So that's kind of how he reasons about primary causes, secondary causes, and causation when it comes to sin. But I think if you sort of apply this logic, then we can say that God is the primary cause of our prayers and that we're the secondary cause of our prayers. And if that's the case, then it seems like we genuinely are causes who act spontaneously, meaning freely, you mm -hmm. would think freely, and are responsible for our prayers. So I think that's how you meet the intuition that we're the cause of our own prayers. We're secondary causes. Excuse me, could you tell me what time it is? Oh, that's right. It's objection time. Objection time! 
All right, so Chris, now you've given us a better understanding of your view on prayer and free will, and I would like you now to consider some objections to your view, because, you know, seeing how you deal with objections is going to help everyone understand really, like, really get into the inside of this view. So I've got three objections I'd like you to consider. So here's the, here's the first objection. So you gave this definition of what a human person is, and you gave me two different definitions, actually. The first one, you said a human person is the kind of being that is created by God to participate in the triune life of God. And then on the second definition, you said that a human person is the kind of creature that's been given some sort of task, like, you know, to image God in some sort of way. But I just, I get this feeling that something is missing here in this definition because, you know, like, it seems like just about any creature could be given this task, uh, regardless of whether or not they're human. So, so here's, a, here's a, imagine a particular like state of affairs. Like, um, so say God decrees that there's these highly evolved cows. At some point in the future, cows will evolve to such a extent that, you know, God's going to give them the task to image God. And then that God somehow like destines these cows to also participate in the triune life of God. Well, on the definition of what it means to a human that you gave me, these cows now are going to count as human persons. And it seems it just seems crazy to me to say that, well, highly evolved cows are human persons. Like, so I feel like something's gone wrong with the definition. Right. So, yeah, I would want to say that they are persons in some sense, because personhood, I don't think, is limited only to human beings. Mm. Um, however, I guess that objection or that question forces me to sharpen my definition a little bit. And I, I think there are a few ways to sharpen that definition. I think one way would be to appeal to some sort of biological definition of what human beings are. So maybe you have a particular genetic sort of definition, or maybe mm -hmm. you have a, a causal history sort of definition that goes back to to sort of the origin of, of our particular species. So that's potentially one way to sharpen the definition. So you have the, the, the participating in the life of God and the task, and then you add this other part as a sort of um, add-on. Right. I'm not sure I'd be too happy with the, the genetic account, mm. partly because, and I'm no genetic expert, sure. my understanding is that to appeal merely to genetics wouldn't be super wise because the human genome has changed significantly. It has, yeah. Uh, over thousands and thousands uh, of years, and who knows what the human genome is going to look like in the future. Right, because from what I understand, um, we have a whole lot of viruses that have just perfectly integrated themselves into our DNA. And they're just there, just hanging out in our DNA. Yeah. And they weren't always in the in, our, in the Homo sapien DNA. And yeah. so I'm just like, well, that, well that's, that's just weird in general. Yeah. But I'd say more stuff like that happens. And at some point, it seems like, well, the DNA of, of humans has altered so much that like, is it really still humans? Right. So yeah, so this could be a worry. But then you said like, well, yeah, there's this so causal it, story I could tell too that maybe yeah. you can get out of these problems. Yeah, so the causal story might be a little bit better than the genetic story because the genetic story operates, I think, on a false view of uh, of genetics in which the human genome is some sort of like essential thing that mm. doesn't change. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I would actually want to appeal to Christ, and I think this is okay. where sort of the Christological anthropology stuff that I mentioned earlier comes into play. And I tend to think uh, that sort of the add-on feature to these two other participation and task, mm -hmm. I would want to say that a human person, so we can exclude cow persons, is just whatever kind of creature the incarnate Christ okay. was. So that means that what it counts, so whatever it counts to be as a human person, you need some sort of reference to the incarnate Christ, because I think 
the incarnate Christ is in some sense normative for our definition of humanity. So cow persons are not human persons because they're not sufficiently similar to what the incarnate Christ is like. Now, maybe that pushes the question back a little bit because then you have to explain what that similarity relationship is. Right, yeah. But I think at the very least, it gives you a foothold to start working mm-hmm. on the question. So to make sure I'm getting just right, it seems like the way to get out of the objection is to say, well, first, let me detach humans from persons because there's lots of other things can be persons. And you've got, since you're a Christian, you've got independent reason for thinking that because you believe in the yeah. Trinity. You think there are three divine persons. Right. And you don't want to say they're human just because they're persons. Right. So yeah, so you've already got independent motivation for saying persons can attach to lots of different kinds of species. Maybe cows, maybe, chickens. cows chickens. Maybe you don't want to say God's a species, but yeah, but the point sure. still remains. Uh, and then now you're going to say too, though, maybe I don't really know exactly what the biological facts are when attached to what it means to be human, but whatever looks like Christ, because yeah. that's the normative account. And that seems to fit with lots of possible biological facts. You could, uh, stories you could tell about what it means to be human. Right. So, okay. All right, cool. So let's look at a second objection here. The second objection looks at the account of prayer that you gave. So you said one of the intuitions that we have about prayer is that God does things because we pray for them. I, I guess I'm still struggling to understand how this works on theological determinism. So on theological determinism, God determines the entire timeline of history before he creates the universe. So he determines what I will pray for even before I exist. So I again, like I'm just really struggling to see how God does something because I pray for it, given the sort of story that theological determinists tell. Yeah, so um, I think the because issue really depends on how we understand the word because. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been helped a little bit by Paul Helm, who... Uh, who points this out, basically saying that when people use the word because, they're not exactly being very clear. So what they mean by... And someone by, like Helm would yeah. po- be able to spot that because right. he's really good at point, like, pointing out these sort of ambiguities in right. our language. Yeah. Um, so essentially he says that when we use the word because, what we're trying to sort of capture, the intuition that we're trying to capture, is that there's some causal... There's some chain in sort of the the causal relationships between us praying for X and X coming about. Mm. Now, how you cash out the phrase because or the meaning of because, that's where sort of the differences between the OP or the the ordinary account and the secondary causal account come about. Now, what I want to say is that under theological determinism, because is cashed out in terms of playing a role in God's preordained chain of causal events. Mm. So I think that because in this particular understanding uh, means that prayer is a condition that God set eternally. So Mm -hmm. before time, God set this thing as a condition for which that needs to be fulfilled before a particular event is going to follow in sort of the order of decrees. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that that captures it it helps a bit but but basically what what, i guess what i'm trying to say is that uh when i use the word because i mean that god did something Mm -hmm. that he would not have done that's not exactly that's the opposite (laughs) well okay (laughs) so so i guess the idea is supposed to be something like this right so if i'm saying well why would i bother praying if god's determined everything like you're trying to say well no 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 no. god is still doing it uh because you've prayed in the sense that he's ordained things turn about this way uh, he wants to have the prayer help bring about the effect. 
So it really does matter that you pray in order for the certain events to come about. I mean, right. that's, that's so, but I'm not using because in the sense of like, I'm influencing God in, in the sort of way that others would might want to have, because that's going to go against the theological determinist. But I'm using because there to say, well, no, this, I do need to pray in order so that these other events come about, because that's the way God's ordained things. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, in this account or the secondary causal account, what I'm trying to get across is that there's a particular story mm-hmm. of the way things, of the way that God has ordained certain things to come about. And part of that story, in order to give sort of the, the conditions for later parts in the story, require that certain initial conditions be met. Uh, and those conditions might, in the case of petitioning prayers, are prayers. Right. Right. So if, if God wants to bring about the the Dodgers winning the World Series in mm-hmm. 2020. It's it's strange talking about praying for, for sporting events. Sure, but, we're um, American. I mean, it happens. You yeah, know. but if if that's the story God has init- has decreed that the Dodgers are going to win, then in this in my account of petitioning prayer, what I'm saying is that God has also decreed that I'm going to pray for the Dodgers to win, and that particular action, me praying, is part of the the story of the sort of the, the sequence of events okay. which will bring about the Dodgers winning the World Series. Okay, so let's look at one final objection. So this final objection looks at one of the other intuitions of prayer. Another intuition you said is that I pray, like I freely pray for what I desire. And again, I, I again, I'm, I'm really struggling to see how this is compatible with theological determinism. On most developed accounts of theological determinism, God causes me to have the desires that I have and so if I have, so if God causes me to have the desires that I have, I mean, how am I freely praying for what I desire? Because the desires are coming from God is, is what it seems like. Yeah. To get freedom in a theological determinist, specifically in a compatibilist account, it looks like you need spontaneity or voluntariness. Mm-hmm. At least that's sort of what I mentioned in Vermigli's account. That mm-hmm. he, he really wants our desires to be spontaneous. That looks difficult when Vermigli says things like God has implanted a particular desire in us. Now, that only is difficult if it's the case that those desires, the the ones that God implants in us, don't sort of correspond or align with the kind of desires that we already have. Now, one way to give an account in which those new desires that God plants uh, within us might fit with our sort of our internal principles, our spontaneity, mm-hmm. is by appealing to the fact that prior to the fall, we already have certain kinds of desires. Uh, now, you might give a diff- different accounts of what those desires might be. Sure. You might think that maybe those desires are to do God's will. Maybe they're to always seek to do the good of the other or whatever it might be. So you give mm-hmm. some sort of account of what kind of desires we have prior to the fall. And then after uh, the fall or in a fallen state, those desires somehow get marred, they get disordered or whatever, so that they're no longer the principal desire or the the strongest desire that we have. So when God gives us the new desires that he wants us to pray for, uh, we can appeal to the fact that part of the way that we're created is with these original desires that are to do what God wants, that are to do God's will or, or whatever might be the case. Okay, so um, let me make sure I'm following along right. So part of the way to get out of this objection, because the objection would be like, well, if if these desires that God's putting in me, if they're completely alien to me, then like it's just coming out of the blue. It's not really my desire at all. Not free. But if humanity's made a particular way, say like with a God-shaped hole in their heart or something, well, they've already got that desire for God anyway, but it's been distorted by the fall 
Well, part of what God's doing when he's helping us pray is really helping us get at that desire that we already had anyway, that just getting rid of the distortions that prevent us from really being able to get at that desire and really actualize that desire. So that, is that is that kind of the way out? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly the way out. I think a helpful way to see this is to appeal to different ordered, mm-hmm. different orders of desires, mm. right? So um, I might currently have a desire for sinful things, but I have a higher desire or a second order desire, whatever you might want to call it, according to which I actually want to do the things that God wants me to do. Mm. It's just that I'm blocked from doing that because of sin or uh, that second order desire is no longer my primary desire. So that desire is still in me in some way. It just might be latent mm-hmm. or marred or disfigured or whatever it might and be. Somehow I can't put priority over this right. good desire. I keep prioritizing my evil desire. Yeah, so the good desire is still there. Mm-hmm. God just has to. So when God gives me the new desires to, pr- to pray for particular things, mm-hmm. it's still voluntary because it's still in line with a desire that I have. It might not be the strongest one, but it's mm-hmm. still part of my design. Okay, well, thank you. All right, this is the popcorn round where guests don't know the questions ahead of time. The questions can be random, the answer is more ridiculous. Chris, you have to answer these questions as quickly as possible, faster than one can say pop pop. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, question number one. What song have you been listening to repeatedly lately? This is uh, probably really embarrassing. I don't even know the name of the song, but Taylor Swift has a new song mm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I uh, find particularly catchy. I think. Is it what Calm Down or something like Calm that? Calm Down, yes. yes. Okay, okay. So you've been listening to this a lot lately. Uh, at least it's been... It's been playing on mm-hmm. Spotify. Right. That's what I tell people. So it might not be it might you not intentionally be, seeking yes, it out, but it's there. But maybe I am. Maybe. Intentionally. Who knows? You know, well, you know, I won't admit that. Yeah, it's fine. That's fine. We've all got, uh, you know, uh, certain secrets we don't want to let out. And being a Taylor Swift fan, you know, that's, it could, there could be worse things. All right. So question number two. So if Hostess announced that Twinkies will no longer be available, how long would it take you to stop crying? Uh, less than a second. Oh, you just don't, you don't care about Twinkies? Uh, Twinkies are okay. But just not enough but, to cry yeah, over. No, definitely not. Mm-hmm. They kind of burn my tongue, which is very weird. But why, Okay, because I was going to say something's wrong with your moral <laughs> intuitions here that you wouldn't cry over them, but now something's no, wrong with your biological. Physical, yeah, yes. there's biological things that are wrong with you. Burning your tongue, goodness. Okay, question number three. Complete the following lyrics. If looks could kill, you would be a blank. A murderer? Mm-hmm. Mm. Is if, that a song? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Salt and pepper. If looks could kill, you would be an Uzi. Yeah, shotgun. Anyway, question number four. What is the best fast food place in America? And note, there is a correct answer. In-N-Out. Mm. Oh, you're an In-N-Out man. Okay. Well, I've been in California, I guess, I suppose. I'll allow it, but, you know, whatever. It's just not Whataburger. It's not. Yeah, see, because this is the thing. All the Texans want me to enjoy Whataburger. And I'm like, it's it's all right. No. But, you know. mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I would go with In-N-Out over Whataburger. Definitely. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, question number five. What is the most annoying thing ever? Slow drivers. Mm, mm-hmm. So you're trying to like... Well, well not, like tra- not in traffic. Mm-hmm. So like if there's traffic, like you have to be slow. Like there's no option. <laughs> right, yeah. You want to just ram through the traffic. But when everybody's going 80 on the freeway and 
somebody's driving 65 mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. is a pet peeve that is i could see that especially if because you live like around uh, la and yeah. so la traffic's terrible so if it finally opens up yeah and somebody's going that slow it's like i just got out of this traffic yeah. come on man and it's dangerous mm-hmm. it is it's yeah really dangerous mm-hmm. my mom drives like that so i'll <laughs> never let if i ever go anywhere with her i won't let her drive fair it enough freaks me out <laughs> all right so final question if mountain lions could start talking tomorrow what is the first thing you would say to them? Are you human persons? Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show today, Chris. Absolutely. And that ends the popcorn round. You done a pop pop. <laughs> Disgusting. You done a pop pop. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on God, time, and so much more. 